again, welcome. My name is Ben Kearns. Super glad that you're here, part of our church. Thanks for being a part of our commercial around our app. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, right, we are a church that values spiritual formation. We value this journey towards Christ where we are going to be molded and shaped into the image of Christ. That is it. It is all about that spiritual formation exercise. And the people who I think have a rhythm that does it the best is the recovery community. Every time I get to be a part of the recovery community, every time as I get to be with people who are on their recovery journey, I am mesmerized at how intentional that journey is. And I mean, if you didn't know this, the 12 steps actually started as a Christian formation experience and to broaden it out so the whole world could have access. They actually toned down the language, but it is a Christian formation experience. It begins with recognizing I am at the end of the rope. I no longer have control of my life, right? I am broken down. I no longer have control and I'm willing to submit myself and my life to a higher power. And we know as a church that that higher power is Jesus Christ. And I love it because once you make that declaration, once you acknowledge your spot, once you submit yourself to Christ, I mean, that's just day one. Then it is a lifetime, a lifetime of making sure that you are in community, that you have a sponsor, that you have a mentor, that you have somebody that's walking with you as you work through the steps to make sure that you are a whole and recovered person. And once you get to the end, you do it all over again and you do it all over again. And for any of you who've been a part of the recovery community or know people in the recovery community, you know that it is not a straight line, right? It is huge peaks, giant valleys, and it is a, just a tremendously hard and challenging journey. And I'm so thankful for the recovery people in our church who are just working hard at it. And I love that we get to share that as Christ, as Christ's fellow brothers and sisters. Um, a few years ago, I came across a movie though that I just, it, it hit me just to the core of my being because for the recovery community and for those of us who are just normal self-absorbed human beings who just wreck shop and people around us and hope for the best, this, this movie, Beautiful Boy, I don't know if you saw it, it it's, a, it's a movie about recovery. It actually takes place here in Marin. I mean, it is our story. It is people in our community's story. And Steve Carell, right, he's so empathetic and so incredible. But it's the story of recovery from the dad's perspective. And talk about heartache, right? From, the, from your perspective, from someone who's like just messing up their life and causing death and destruction, that's one thing. But from the dad's perspective who birthed this beautiful boy, this child with all the hopes, all the dreams, all of the opportunities that lay ahead for this precious kid. And then to watch through sin and brokenness and rebellion and systemic brokenness and temperament and all the ways that the world just crushes us to watch his precious baby boy get addicted to heroin and to meth and to just go off the deep end. And the whole movie is the dad running after his kid, right? The kid just getting arrested, running away, getting arrested, running away, trying to hold it together. But the dad, day in, day out, is running after his son, is paying for rehab, paying for rehab again, paying for rehab again, right? Running after his kid, always open-handed, always open-hearted, and sometimes even in the process of tough love. It is a challenging, heartbreaking, beautiful story. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. And the reason why I'm so fascinated by this story, and it's a little bit what we're going to, and it's exactly what we're talking about today, which is we're going to look at the narrative of scripture, because I believe that this story in such a beautiful and powerful way is just a picture of the story of the gospel. You see, in the very beginning, right, God created the heavens and the earth. God created humanity to be in precious and deep and intimate relationship with us. And we, out of our own sin, our own rebellion, our own family of origin, our own systems of brokenness, 
ended up turning, uh, running away and causing death and destruction. And we know that own death and destruction, but you can see from the dad's perspective how hurtful and just how challenging that must be for all of God's hopes and dreams for you and for me and for the creation to watch humans just continue to crush each other and crush one another. But all of that story culminates in the person of Jesus Christ, right, who ends up being the good news and making a way for us to be a redeemed and restored person. And so that story is the story that we're going to be telling all summer long. And a lot of times we get tripped up because we want to be people in the Word. And as we read the Scriptures, we're like, how is that beautiful story found in all these weird passages of Scripture? And we thought we're going to uncork 10 really fun stories in the Old Testament. 10 passages in the Old Testament that when you read them, you're probably like, what in the world is going on here? Or what does this have to do with anything? And we're going to realize that these passages in the Old Testament actually paint the picture, point towards the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this summer, our Summer in the Scriptures theme is this, good news in the Old Testament. All the weird, wacky stuff you're going to see in the Old Testament, this is good news in the Old Testament. And we're going to take a look at Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and we're going to see that God's loving care and sacrifice for a rebellious people. So first of all, why don't you turn your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And we're going to take a look at the story. So you're going to see in the story that God has this beautiful intention with creation, right? Just like a mom looking at her precious baby, seeing all the hopes, all the dreams, all the idealism for what this kid could be. I mean, this is God's posture as he, as he works through creation, right? God, the all-powerful, almighty king of the universe says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And he begins to speak creation into existence and heaven and earth, Sun, moon, animals, fish, all the things, right? And for us, we think, gosh, what is going on there? How do I understand that? Well, one of the ways that's been super helpful for me to understand that is to realize in the ancient world, right, ancient, ancient people would say, oh, there's a sun god, and there's a moon god, and there's all these gods, they're polytheistic. And so everything was a god, and the god of scripture very clearly reveals and says, no, 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 Yahweh is the one high true god. You worship the sun god, Yahweh created the sun. You worship the fish. Oh my goodness, God created the fish, right? That God is the creator over all of creation and it is good. It is good. And then he creates humans, women and men in his image and it is very good. And then you see how he creates Adam and Eve and then in Genesis 2, right? He creates Adam and Eve and she becomes his helpmate. And, uh, and I love how chapter 2 ends. It says this, this is, what the, this is why a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and, and, and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, we live in an era where nudity is no longer cool, which that's actually probably a good thing. That's a good cultural shift for us. But we need to understand what that's talking about is Adam and Eve were naked. They were naked before each other. They were naked before God. And what the author is trying to communicate is that humanity and God were an intimate friendship. They were an intimate relationship. There was no sin. There was no shame. There was no barrier. God's intention for us, for you and for me and for all of creation is that there would be no brokenness, no sin, no division, that we could just be free in the fullest sense of the word. So that's God's beautiful intention. Um, but then, right, Adam and Eve, they eat from the fruit, the one thing they couldn't do, which is so humans, right? Don't walk on the lawn. I have to walk on the lawn. Like, it's just this thing. Like, we, there's this peace in us. They sin, they rebel, and the relationship is broken forever 
and ever. And I love this picture because there's all sorts of ways I feel like that God could have communicated what that brokenness means and what it could look like. And I mean, he could have gone full angry dad, like, yes, I resonate with that. But instead, look at this poetic way in which he tells the story. So then the man and his wife, they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I love that. The man and the woman, they were walking in the, in the garden in the cool day. Like, like you get the picture, like this is what creation was supposed to be. It was supposed to be Adam and Eve, man and woman and God, all just walking together, enjoying creation, talking, visiting, eating of all the good things. That's how it was supposed to be. But they hid from God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? What a beautiful and poetic way to basically say this dream that God had for you and for me and for creation just got decimated. And now there's a separation. There's this broken relationship between us and God. And because God is incredible and right, and we know this in our own lives, but there is actual painful consequences for rebellion. Right? You know, if anyone has ever wronged you and they never got in trouble, there's this giant violation. Like it is part of our DNA that we need justice. Justice is when someone has wronged you, they need to be punished. That is part, it is in us. And we think about it, you know, abstractly out there, but when it happens to us, when you've ever been wronged or betrayed, you know there needs to be some sort of thing to make that right. Well, this separation from God, this rebellion actually caused this punishment. So there are these painful consequences that happen and that come because of this fall. So God, right, he first, he, he curses, well, he, doesn't, he curses Adam. He says, hey, there, now work is no longer going to be fun, right? The, the ground is cursed and you are going to work hard. So those of you trying to find fulfillment in work, just know that if work sucks, you, that's the curse, like you're living it. Like work is awful. You're, we're not supposed to work this hard. It's part of the curse. And for, for women, he said, listen, and now you're going to have pain in childbirth childbearing, right? And so interesting, these two ways, God said, listen, I want you to enjoy this garden. I want you to be fellow um, makers in creation. That's God's hope for us. And in the, the curse is saying, hey, you were supposed to enjoy your life, but instead you're going to work. You were supposed to partner with me in creation, and instead there's going to be pain. So the, the punishment was basically saying, hey, these things that you were supposed to partner with me, we were supposed to enjoy, you are now going to have some suffering. And hopefully that suffering is going to remind you Oh, because we blew it. We were broken. And that broken and that punishment should lead to repentance. Just like if you've ever been a parent and you punish a child, right? You don't punish them as some cruel thing. You hope that they learn a lesson. You don't want them to run out into the middle of the street, right? The punishment is to lead them to repentance. And that was God's dream. So Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we get this beautiful picture. We see how sin breaks our relationship with God. And, uh, and we see that Adam and Eve are cursed. And he ends up cursing the snake in a second, which I'll talk about. But that is the Old Testament story. It's tripped up Christians forever and ever. And where in the world is the good news? And what I love is even in Genesis chapter three, even in God doling out his punishment, there's this little couple nuggets that actually point towards the good news. And what I love about this sermon series, which we're gonna do all summer long, is we're gonna look at the Old Testament stories that are these weird ancient stories from ancient people trying to get their head around this ancient God as he generously revealed the story of God to them. And in that, we're going to find out that there is actually good news. So um, let's go. Um, and it starts with this, right? That, um, sorry, there's two things that happen. One is that uh, there's a prophecy that happens and one that there's a sacrifice that happens. And the first thing that's so fun about prophecy, prophecy is the idea that it's a hope in the punishment. 
And there's, there's kind of two kinds of teachers in the world. If, if, you found, if, if you remember going to school, my kids just finished finals. I know kids who just graduated college, you finished finals. But there's kind of these two lanes of teachers. One, there's the super hard teacher. And they want to teach you a lesson that they are super smart and they want you to step up and they throw down this gauntlet of, of just challenge. And everyone walks into their first test and they crash and burn. But the super hardcore um, type A achievement people are like, I'm not going to let this teacher have the betterment of me. And they work so hard and they find some way to succeed. But most people are like, that was impossible. And they drop the class or they just get their soul crushed, realizing that there's no way they're ever going to be able to redeem that grade. And the teacher kind of has this weird joy, like, yep, that's right, because you don't know. You're not working hard enough. You haven't figured it out. But then there's the teacher, especially a good teacher, who is actually just as challenging, who wants their kids, to, the, the students to know just as much information, except there's hope in their F. There's hope in the punishment. And I love this paper, right? See me after class. You failed. You screwed up. But the incredible teachers are the ones who are willing to work with their students and say, gosh, what happened? Were you a slacker? Did you not pay attention? Did you not do something wrong? Well, then you need to fix that. Or do you not understand it? Well, then let me help you walk with it until you can figure out a way to redeem that F and actually have a future, right? As parents, we don't just crush our kids and just like, yeah, we won. No, you always want to give them a, a, a punishment that gives them a reason that points them towards restoration. And that is God's posture. Even in Adam, with Adam and Eve, he didn't punish them in a way to lord it over them, to go, yes, you failed, even in his punishment, he gives this prophecy, this little picture of hope and redemption. And it's a tiny little verse, but it's super fascinating. So here we are in Genesis chapter 3, right? So God uh, curses the snake and then he curses Adam and Eve. So I did a little bit out of order, but that's okay. It's a poem, so you can kind of go back wherever, whatever you want. Okay, you can't technically do whatever you want. Okay. So here we are in Genesis chapter 3. He says this. Cursed are you above all the livestock, all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Hey, you serpent, you are now the snake. And uh, this is how your life is going to be. And then it says, and I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And in that passage of scripture, in the most simple reading, you read that and go, yep, humans and snakes are going to always be at war with each other. They're always going to be nipping at your eels, that there's going to be poison and you need to be aware of it. And we're always going to find ways to like kill them and step on them or whatever. And that's the most simple reading. But what's interesting is over time, the people of God, even um, Jewish people, as they're walking through the scriptures, they look back and they go, oh my goodness, there's all of these little nuggets that are dropped and if over scripture, there's over 315 of these little nuggets that are all pointing towards Jesus. So they're all like not prophecies in the sense of there's going to be this guy named Jesus who's going to blah, blah, blah. But they're these illusions. There's these pictures of, of who this Messiah, of who the Savior is going to be. And right at the beginning, we get this picture that the, that the serpent, right, is going to, there's going to be a challenge with a the woman. They're always going to be crushing humanity. But however, the offspring of the woman will be the one that will finally crush the serpent's head. And all throughout scripture, these are these little nuggets, right? Where, um, that are pointing closer and closer to Jesus. And the, prof the prophetic um, points of scripture all do that. There are these little nuggets of hope that when the, all this bad stuff is happening, when all this punishment is happening, God is trying to remind his people going, yes, this is bad. However, I have a way forward. Now, what's so interesting is as the story of God unfolds, what we realize is the hope in the future is not try harder. Try harder, do better, try harder, do better, try harder, do better. That what, over time, what's, what's being more and more clear is you can't try harder. 
You can't try harder. You're making more of a mess. You're making more of a mess. You can't try harder. You can't try harder. You're making more of a mess. And finally, there's this picture of saying, oh my goodness, this hope for the future is actually not to try harder on the test, not to get all of your ducks in a row, but to recognize, gosh, you can never be made right with God all by yourself. Your sin, your rebellion, your brokenness is too deep and too thick, and there's going to have to be intervention from outside. And what I love is by the time you get to Isaiah, um, you actually get a pretty fun picture as getting closer and closer of what sort of hope we're talking about. So Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1 through 6 says this. I mean, the whole chapter is this very clear picture to Jesus, but I'm going to read the first six passages. It says this, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry ground. He has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by humans, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. But surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of it all, of us all. I love it. As the, prophet, as the prophets get closer and closer pointing to Jesus, we realize the only way through this is through this intervention from God, through the Messiah, who's going to actually have to bear the punishment. We could no longer bear the punishment. He was going to have to bear the punishment. So the second thing is not only was there this prophetic look that's going to give hope in our punishment, but also there's this idea of sacrifice, that sacrifice is the price of forgiveness. You know what I think is so fascinating is every ancient culture everywhere in the world has some sort of narrative that there's something not right between them and God or them and the gods. It is, it is a human thing. We know in our very guts that we have messed up and that God is not happy with us. Like it's in us. It is in our core DNA as made in the image of God. The story of Adam and Eve is in every culture everywhere. And every culture everywhere has also said the only way to be made right with God or the gods or the, the higher power, whatever the, however they understood God, was through some version of sacrifice, human sacrifice, animal sacrifice, that was the only way to make the angry gods not angry. And what I love is that's true because that, we're all made in the image of God. That story is true for all humans. And Jesus comes and intervenes and says, you know what? Instead of continually sacrificing, considering sacrificing, I'm no longer angry. And in fact, my son Jesus is going to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Right? So as we see in Genesis, the very beginning of this, Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. So at the very end of this Genesis account where Adam and Eve, they screw up, God curses Adam and Eve and the serpent, and then he expels them. He sends them out into the, into, uh, into the world. Even in his tough love expression, he still uh, gives this little picture for the future. It says this, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Even in the punishment, even in the expulsion, the authors of Genesis are already giving a picture that Adam and Eve in their shame need to be covered. And here God is already sacrificing an animal and covering their shame, covering their sin and protecting them, even as he's expelling them. And this is the very beginning, the first three chapters of the whole Bible and the whole story of scripture unfolds over and over and over again. We see Paul say it's very clear. He says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. 
So we know all humans are the wages of sin is death. We all know there has to be some sort of punishment, but God doesn't want us to bear the punishment. He wants Jesus to bear the punishment. It is a gift of God. And what I love about Jesus, his entire ministry, his self-understanding of why he came. Yes, he was God. He was incarnate. He came to show us how to live, how to be true humans. He taught these incredible teachings about what it means to be his people Right? He, longed, he pushed back against the Pharisees and religious power brokers. He longed for humanity to live a certain way. All those things are so true. But Jesus understood that the only way that all those things were going to happen, the only way we're going to be restored back to Eden was by Jesus taking on the mantle of the sacrificial lamb. John the Baptist even declares as much. He says in, uh, in John chapter 1, verse 28, he says this. The next day, John, this is John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming. He says, look, it's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's his proclamation. And Jesus knew that. And what I love so much is the story of Genesis, which is a weird story. All summer long, we're looking at these wild stories. And even at the very beginning of this wild story in Genesis, the authors wanted us to know that this God who had this incredible intention for creation, this this incredible, beautiful relationship with humanity and, and creation. And even though humans screwed up, he is not angry, dad. Even in the punishment, he made a point to recognize that there's hope and to recognize that there's ultimately going to be some sort of punishment and that punishment will be made by Jesus. And what a gift, right, that we live in a time that we can look back and see the whole, you know, 4,000-year arc of this whole story and go, oh, put it all together. We didn't have to just own one thing and hope for the rest. Well, I tell you all this because I'd love to ask just one final question, and that's this, that are you willing to own your rebellion. And let's be honest, we live in a moment in time where none of us have to own anything, right? It is always our teacher's fault. It's always the cop's fault. It's always our partner's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. And in fact, I'm like the best. You can give me a situation and I can justify my way out of any situation. We hate taking responsibility. But at the end of the day, for us to to be truly formed, we have to do what our recovery sisters and brothers do, which is to own that our life is no longer tenable. Right? All of this sin, all of this brokenness, it is true and it is our fault. Our sin, our brokenness, our rebellion, the ways that we've participated in systemic brokenness and our own brokenness and caused so much pain to the world around us. Well, the beginning of this process is to recognize that we have to recognize our rebellion. And what I love is in, in Romans chapter five, verse eight, it says, gosh, that God loved us and he showed us his love, that while we were yet sinners, while we were sinners, while we were rebelling, while we were just destroying and wrecking shop on all the things that God loves, is in that moment, um, right, that Christ died for us. And so we don't need to be scared of our rebellion. We don't need to live in shame of our rebellion. We don't need to hide from one another or hide from God. We actually have to confess that. And when we confess that, right, that's the beginning of the process of restoration. We confess our sin, we embrace the sacrifice of Christ and God's forgiveness. And when we embrace that, gosh, that's when we can actually begin to relive God's intention for the garden, to be in relationship with one another that is full of hope and intimacy and joy, and to be a part of creation that is bringing healing and joy um, to the world around us. And so what I wanted to do is just offer a minute, just to be quiet so that we can do whatever sort of business we need to do with God. 
And this idea of what is our rebellion and how do we embrace our forgiveness, this isn't like, hey, day one in Christianity, this is what you do. This is what we do every day. It doesn't matter if you're brand new to the faith or you've been known Christ for so long, like Rob Hoy, like forever. Old guys like Rob, right? All day, every day, that is our rhythm and that is our habit and that is our practice. God, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for my rebellion. I can't do this by myself. I confess my sins and we confess our sins. That's when the grace and the mercy, the forgiveness, the healing, the transformation that happens because of God's goodness and grace to be all that God longs for us to be. So let's just spend a minute doing business with God and then I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, I just want to confess I'm so self-centered and so myopic in my own life. Even when I think about my own sin, I just think of how that impacts my little world, the people right in my little orbit. But I pray that you'd expand my eyes and my imagination, our eyes and our imagination, to recognize that you are this generous and kind-hearted God who loves us, who cares about us, who is brokenhearted by the ways that we're wronging ourselves and each other. I'm so thankful that your posture towards us is one of long suffering and one of mercy, one of patient pursuit. And so this morning, whether it's our first day grappling with our own sin and rebellion, or this is part of our natural practice, God, we again, we confess our sins to you. We recognize, proclaim the affirmations of your scripture that say, when we confess our sins to you, you are faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God, continue to have your way with us. Continue to forgive us. Continue to heal us. Continue to transform us. That we would be on this road of recovery, of spiritual formation, to be the precious sons and daughters that you longed for us to be since the beginning of time. Restore our relationships with one another. Restore our relationships with creation. Restore our relationship with you. And for the day that you make all wrongs right, we long for that day to come. But until that day comes, we pray that you would use us, your people, this church, the church, to be your ambassadors of reconciliation, of mercy and justice. May we be people who continue to point towards you, the creator, the Redeemer, and the Sustainer. We give you all the praise and all the glory. And all of God's kids said, amen and amen. Let's stand as we continue to worship together.